Hello and welcome to the October 2022 episode of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. My name is Colin Yeo and I am joined by Sonia Lenigan, who has been, we're just discussing what word to use. I think promoted is the wrong word, but upgraded, she suggested. So she's been upgraded now to, to official co-host of the Update podcast. So um, thank you for joining me again, Sonia. Hi, everyone. Now, we're talking about quite a lot of stuff this month. We've had all sorts of um, political things going on, which we're going to, to talk about a bit at the start. We've had an awful lot of asylum stuff going on as well, um, and a few sort of longer pieces that I've, I've put out and other people have put out on the website about uh, asylum and, and small boat crossings and so on. We also had a major statement of changes. I say major, and it, it's fairly tweaky for a lot of stuff, but it was a big, long statement of changes, as they often are. And then we've also had quite a few cases. We're not going to cover all of the cases that we covered on the blog, just the, the more important ones, um, the, the, the ones that we think are more important, at least anyway. So before we get started, just a reminder that if you want to claim CPD points for listening to the podcast, then we have courses available for members. Um, you just listen to the podcast and answer a short 10-question um, quiz. Uh, we've got loads of training available these days, over 100 CPD hours last time I counted. Let's head over to freemovement.org.uk slash training if you want to do that. So Getting started with the political nonsense, I, I think, would be a, a, an appropriate word in some ways. Although, you know, that perhaps that understates the the gravity of the impact that some of this stuff um, has, which we're, we're starting to see. So, Suella Bravman, we wrote about um, quite a lot at the beginning of the month. Um, she was then sacked as Home Secretary, and she's she's back again as well. Um, it's her second coming, essentially. Um, I, I, I wrote a, a fairly widely shared. Um, obituary uh, political obituary of, of Suella Bravman which it turns out was was premature um, Suella Bravman was home secretary for 43 days full stop trying to make the point that she achieved nothing basically during that time um, lots of talking the talk no walking the walk no serious uh, attempts to, to get anything done and I think I have to hold my hand up and say um, I think I was I was really wrong when I was concerned that she might be not just nasty, but also competent and therefore dangerous. And and I think um, you know the evidence is that she's nasty. Yes, absolutely. But there's no sign of of competence or effectiveness or or, or anything like that with Suella Bravman so far. And I suppose that could change. But certainly, I think my initial assessment and my initial concern about her her tenure um, was misplaced essentially. And I think um, it's right to say that Sonia, you are absolutely right absolutely right words i love to hear <laughs> well yeah i think to be fair you usually are frankly um so one, one of the things we wanted to, to talk about though is going back to her initial um stint as home secretary and um the speech that she gave uh also the briefings she was giving prior to that conference speech prior to her being sacked so let's let's take the clock back a bit and um you you were going to cover that weren't you uh, yes, so this was Braverman the first, as I'm calling that particular reign, pre-Generic Sunak days. Um, so this is something that was in the Sun. I obviously don't suggest you go and read it. Um, and she was mainly targeting survivors of modern slavery trafficking and students, more specifically dependents of international students. Uh, it seems that students may escape now with now we're in the second reign of Braverman and she it, it seems quite apparent she has less uh, say than in in the first time around. 
the article is basically vile nonsense, uh, particularly in the way she speaks about survivors of modern slavery. One one comment that jumped out on me is saying that she would crack down on people suddenly claiming to be modern slaves after years of living here carefree. I've worked on a lot of trafficking cases. Um, I'm not sure whether you have or not, Colin, but I certainly wouldn't describe the lives of the people that, that I've worked with who have spent years in domestic servitude or being raped as living here carefree. Uh, for those who do manage to escape these situations, it can take a while to be able to discuss it. None of this is news. It is known. It is in the Home Office guidance. Uh, so, you know, making comments like that, it's just really unhelpful, obviously. Um, as far as the actual proposals seem to be around modern slavery, so far it just seems to be what's in Part 5 of the National Indian Borders Act, things like penalising late claims. So I guess we just need to wait and see. Um, one point you made in the article was for a barrister formerly practicing as an immigration lawyer until 2015 she shows a remarkable lack of understanding of what trafficking actually is Uh, I think it's difficult to tell whether she actually does have such a poor grasp of the law or whether she is actually fully aware that what she's saying is incorrect and it's only been said to stoke hatred those are really the only two choices that I can see and I'm inclined to the latter given some of the other falsehoods we've seen coming from her and from the Home Office recently. Um, On that note, I just wanted to point out to anyone who might not have seen it, is After Exploitation coordinated a letter recently that has made a complaint about the use of of statistics in relation to modern slavery claims. Uh, So they've written a letter to the Office for Statistics Regulation not a body I'm particularly um, familiar with. But they include reference to what is the worst thing I've ever seen on gov.uk, which is the press release of 20th of March 2021, so around the early stages of New Plan for Immigration, where they talk about things like child rapists, people who threaten national security and failed asylum seekers. Uh, I'm not sure what the powers are or what the outcome could be, but I think it's very good to see that sort of pushback on the misinformation that's coming from the Home Office and the Home Secretary. In relation to students, as I said, I'm not sure whether it's still the plan to target um, dependents of students. I've noticed that it's uh, some some Labour MPs, Kim Johnson and Bridget Phillipson, I think it was, have been on the case putting in written questions, asking what's been done to assess the impact of these proposals, including on tuition income, which I think is an important point, given how much international students pay. Yeah, it's 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 a really depressing sort of set of attacks, isn't it? And it's interesting what you said at the start there about um, you know perhaps she's not going to follow through with this stuff on students because she's in a slightly different position, having been reappointed by by Sunak. You know, all the the political journalists got very excited about whether there was a deal between them and the sort of conditions on which she was reappointed. And I saw some some reference to her having a free hand to to deal with small boats and things, not necessarily students though. So yeah, I I, I don't know what's happening there. But the um, the modern slavery stuff is just, and they're obviously using them as a sort of, you know, using trafficking victims as um, some sort of excuse for their inability to address the, the small boat crossings and turning them into the kind of new bogeyman. Um, and it, it's just so transparently trying to blame somebody else for their own failings. And yet you see this kind of being, being parroted in the media, which is actually quite a, 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 
it's quite a good segue into into the the next um, blog post we were going to talk about. Right, there are other things I want to say as well. First, um, yeah, the modern slavery statistics. I think we were talking about this just before we started recording. Um, I think we we will put a blog post up. I hope on um, what those statistics say. But, you know, the vast majority of um, trafficking cases that get referred to the Home Office are found to be genuine. Um, so you know, saying that these people are are exploiting modern slavery act is is just it's provable nonsense. Just like saying that people crossing the the channel aren't refugees you know they are technically speaking refugees uh, that most of them are found to be refugees um so yeah le- leading on to that um that blog post about um the um let me read out that the title how much influence does the media have over the hostile environment this is a piece by an academic cat langley um and it's it, it's an interesting piece and it's such a, an important question about as well about um you know how far it's the public uh, uh, influencing the media, how far is the media influencing the public? And um, w- one of the notable things I think at the moment is that all this media coverage on small boats hasn't led to an uptick in concern about immigration. And um, one of the things I sometimes see in the sector that makes me anxious is where people are relying on old or existing statistics to refute news stories by the Home Office, you know, press releases by the Home Office. So stuff like, oh, well, lots of Albanians are, are winning their asylum claims. Well, that that has been true, but it, it's not necessarily always going to be true. And, you know, the numbers do seem to be changing, but it's almost impossible for us to respond to these kind of leaked um, statistics from the Home Office where they're they're clearly spinning them. They're clearly being very selective about what they say. And yet they are signaling to us that actually things aren't necessarily as they have been in the past. Um, And although the reason I say that is that although at the moment the public are much more concerned about other topics than immigration and immigration concern is still at a historic low and it has been basically since 2016, that's not necessarily going to stay the case. And um, you know, it may well be that all of this this media coverage does eventually um, start to cause a sort of uptick in, in in public concern. I hope that's not going to be the case, but um, but yeah, could prove to be eventually. Um, okay, well, let's move on to another couple of things. It's kind of intersection of, of politics and policy and operations. A couple of inspection reports which we covered on the blog, and which both both of which I think are very important in in different ways, and both of which highlight wider issues with the the contemporary Home Office. And um, Sonia, you were going to talk about these. Yeah, so the first one is, uh, the article is called Home Office Hotels Not Fit to House Unaccompanied Child Asylum Seekers. I hadn't actually read the ICIBI Independent Chief Inspector of Borders and Immigration Report. It was published on the 19th of October and the inspection took place between March and May this year. I hadn't read it until I saw the article. And so a lot of what was in there, obviously, I know that things are terrible, but I hadn't realized the extent of it until I read the article, which is really quite distressing. Um, so it it just, it sets out that children in hotels are not considered looked after children um, by the local authorities. And so without that having that looked after status, it means that they are not fully assessed or provided with a dedicated social worker and key worker. Uh, it means that they are denied the same legal entitlements and protections as those who are provi- as those provided to a looked after child. Uh, they're prevented from accessing relevant safeguards. The Home Office has acknowledged Section 55 of the um, 2009 Act, obviously, that they need to take decisions in the best interest of the child, but it's difficult to see that taking place in this report. 
It says um, children placed in hotels are not enrolled in school, nor provide with provided with any kind of formal or informal education while they're in the hotels. That means that their basic education needs are left unmet. Uh, very seriously, staff living on site at two of the hotels had not been cleared by disclosure and barring service through criminal record checks. So that's obviously a huge concern. Um, there was an interesting comment, I think, from one of the Home Office staff members in the ICIBI report. They said, as nothing has gone wrong, there is complacency. But if something does go wrong, we don't have a leg to stand on. And what we've seen in, I think, yesterday, in the last few days anyway, reports are now emerging of children who have been sexually assaulted in these hotels. So, you know, something clearly is going wrong and urgent action needs to be taken. However, the Home Office accepted only one of the four recommendations, and that was in relation to the enhanced DBS checks. They didn't accept the other recommendations on the basis that they could not comply with the timescales. So there just does not appear to be any urgency or enough urgency to the actions that need to be taken to sort this out. Yeah, and it, it's um, and the reason I said with the intro there that this is this says something wider about the contemporary Home Office is that it, it's another example of the Home Office being warned and then doing nothing about it, and then really serious problems emerging. Um, and it's just a totally dysfunctional department. Um, so yeah, it's it's a really it is quite a distressing report, and it, I'm in the same position as you. I hadn't um, hadn't initially read the um, read the report. I think hey, there's a lot going on that day, and they, the, the way the Home Office releases these reports, they're kind of encouraging people not to read them. They release several at a, a time because they they control the, the publication time and date. Um, but yeah, this one this one's got some really shocking contents to it. Yes, exactly. And speaking of an ICIBI report dump, um, it takes us neatly on to the next one, which is indefinite leave to remain applications under Appendix FM, slow, expensive and inaccessible. And this report was published on the 18th of October, I think. So the day before the last report. Uh, This one is not going to be news to anyone, I don't think. Uh, The ICIBI stated that Home office data indicates the vast majority of applications that reach the ILR stage are granted, so delay, complexity, and barriers to full integration into our society seem unnecessary. That is quite the understatement. Um, Some of the points that were made in the report that, again, just won't come as news to most people. Um, Complexity is such that most applicants still feel that they need to instruct a lawyer. Um, This is why I think an application checking service is a really vital tool for people who are making these repeat applications um, because, you know, often they can do it. They just need a bit more support. Um, The report also said that applicants do not feel that the current Home Office fee of £2,404 per applicant is justifiable compared to the fees for other immigration applications. For example, EUSS is free and extension applications are £1,048. The high fees constitute a barrier for families to settle. And, you know, the thing that we know is happening is that people are staying with leave to remain extensions rather than applying for indefinite leave to remain, because you can also get a fee waiver with an extension application, and that's not available with indefinite leave to remain. Um, The other point made in the report was that The fees are resulting in families choosing to leave children out of the applications, which then leaves them potentially at risk of becoming undocumented. Um, And when 
When these concerns were raised, the response from a senior home office manager was, if children were left off the applications, it was a personal choice where they test the waters before applying. I mean, what on earth that is supposed to mean is beyond me. Testing what waters? I mean, it's you know, these ILR applications are, in theory, straightforward. We're mainly talking about people who have done their five or ten years. You know, I don't know what this test the waters comment is meant to be. Yeah, it's just it's it's awful, isn't it? And it's so emblematic of of the modern home office, modern immigration policy, um, just the total lack of interest by the home office in the impact of these policies, which do have you know th- these are these do have wider public policy implications about people's ability to settle in, just penalising migrant families and, and so on, and they just don't care. They're not even collecting data on the impact. That they're, they're not interested in the. What, what we might call the dropout rate, which is something yeah. that you know the Home Office has monitored in the past. Actually, uh, the dropout rate being you know the number of people who start on an immigration route compared to the number of people who finish, um, and and you know just there, there is a dropout rate. There always is. What happens to these people is is a bit of a mystery, and a lot of them don't leave. We is suspected they just kind of end up becoming unauthorized and and, and potentially subject to the hostile environment. Um, so yeah, it's a really it's a really important report, but it's not going to it's not going to lead to any change with the current lot. You know, they just don't care about this stuff. Yeah, exactly. Um, the other point that I thought was interesting and worth um, highlighting that was news to me was that reconsideration requests. Apparently, the Home Office has been allowing these, and one third of reconsideration requests submitted between 2019 and 2022 were successful. However, the Home Office responded and said, actually, you can't do this. And they updated their guidance to make it clear that, um, and that is decisions where ILR is applied for and limited leave to remain is granted instead. So people were submitting reconsideration requests of those decisions. Um, but actually, you can't do that. So you should be JR in those decisions. So anyone who has been submitting reconsiderations, just to draw attention to the fact that that's no longer an option. So let's just. So I've missed that. So let's just get this right. So people <laughs> were submitting reconsideration requests, which are fairly cheap and effective. Exactly. A third of them were being granted. Exactly. And the Home Office response is to say, "Okay, we're not going to allow that anymore." Yes, exactly. It's just, it's, it's just mind-blowing, the response, it? The response is quite funny. It said, um, a valued aspect of the inspections carried out by the ICIBI is the external scrutiny they provide. This offers a useful lens internally to encourage and enable detailed and continuous review and improvement of processes and guidance. As a result of this inspection, it was identified that the existing policy on reconsiderations had been applied incorrectly to a small number of applicants. So we updated the guidance. Oh, dear. And it just... And it, it's kind of f- funny, but only in a very, very kind of black humor kind of way. Oh, yes, um, quite. Yeah, it's just, uh, and you know, th- this is real people. But you know, unlike the the report we talked about a second ago um, o- o- on children in hotels, unlike the the re- many reports the Home Office received on the conditions in various refugee camps that they've managed to set up and the the reception facilities, you know, this is a slow burn issue. It has a massive impact on a significant number of people for a prolonged period. But there's no crisis this point you know it's not the sort of thing that the media are ever really going to pick up on and report on and so nothing will happen with 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 this current sort of generation of politicians um and and civil servants frankly as well i'm always a bit unsure about how far to to blame civil servants as well as ministers you know in theory ministers are entirely responsible but this this does seem to be part of a a sort of institutional home office mindset frankly yeah there's definitely a mix of blame i think yeah 
Right. Okay. Well, let, let's move on. We've, um, we're going to cover a lot of different asylum things. Um, and I think we probably need to whiz through these relatively quickly. Um, I, I published something I've been thinking about for quite a long time. Um, and, and this is, you know, sometimes my, my blog posts are, are kind of fire from the hip, re- quickly sort of hammered out and, and not necessarily well thought through. And sometimes I've been thinking about them for ages. And this was um, a source of a combination of both because I had been thinking about this for a long time, but hadn't necessarily, my thoughts hadn't necessarily crystallized. So it's all about basically why the asylum success rate has gone up so much in the last few years. Um, because until 2018, it was about sort of 30% or so. Uh, it'd been up a bit, it'd been down a bit, but is it hovering around that kind of rate? And then it suddenly in 2019 goes up to 50%. And then in 2021, up to about 75% where it has stayed since. And that is really remarkable. Um, and it, and you know, it suggests that the, the, the previous policies that were designed to deter uh, you know, that old phrase, bogus asylum seekers and so on in the in the 90s and the two, early 2000s are just um, misplaced now because the, the vast majority of people who who are um, uh, claiming asylum are ultimately being recognized as genuine refugees. So surely we should change policies. Obviously, that's not the way that Bravman and, and, and co think, but I think that that opens up a really serious argument about that. So anyway, the, the, the blog post goes through the different sort of things that might have caused that, um, looking at statistical collection. So there is some reason to think that the the way the Home Office was previously collating statistics actually understated the success rate in previous years. And, and um, it's to do with Dublin cases being counted twice, basically. Um, whether um, the situation, you know, is the world just a more dangerous place than it used to be? Um, which is you know, something we shouldn't discount. I, I, I think um, that's just not true when it comes down to it. The quality of country information, the kind of input of the immigration tribunal, both through country guidance cases and also through just better quality of, of, of decisions by sort of new, newer generation of judges, um, expanded definition of a refugee, perhaps. I don't think much turns on that, really. Um, looking at the culture of disbelief at the Home Office and the way that's been tackled. Um, looking at perhaps culture change at the Home Office. And, and perhaps, and this is a bit optimistic, um, but you know, I, I sometimes I'm a bit optimistic about these things, um, whether Home Office civil servants being involved with resettlement of refugees might have helped cause us a bit of a, a mindset um, shift. So, yeah, it, 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 it's. Um, I think it's a really interesting topic. Um, I, I don't think there is a sort of definitive, clear answer, but um, but those were those were my thoughts anyway, and um, hopefully that's kind of useful. Um, that leads on to people crossing in small boats. Um, so, Sonia, you were going to talk about a blog post on the legality of of crossing the channel. Um, yeah, so I think it was Jed Pennington who wrote this one. Are people crossing the channel in small boats doing anything illegal? Uh, and the short answer is don't know yet. Um, essentially, the Home Office updated their guidance on irregular or unlawful entry and arrival in the UK on the 8th of July. And that says that people who are intercepted at sea and then brought to port are considered to be arriving passengers and not illegal entrants. However, that guidance doesn't consider the new offences and changes made by National Indian Borders Act, which is addressed in separate guidance. So TBD, basically. And what is going to be particularly relevant is the extent to which prosecutors decide that it's in the public interest to pursue these criminal pr- prosecutions. So we need to wait and see, basically. 
Yeah, it's it's an, it's almost an impossible question to answer, actually, I think, because on the face of it, with the legal changes, I think the answer is yes, because um, you know, if you, you don't have entry clearance or leave to enter, and therefore you're, you're breaking the new Section 24 of the Immigration Act 1971. But what, what, what that simplistic answer misses is that ex parte Adimi is still sitting there in the background, this, this famous case from 1999, where basically it was held that um, it is unlawful to prosecute refugees. Um, it, it's an abusive process. And, and so, um, yes, on the face of it, you're breaking the law, but actually it's much more complicated than that. And this is clearly going to be litigated. And, um, I, I, yeah, I've had some contacts with um, one of the teams that's, that's doing the new um, hand-on-the-tiller cases, you know, kind of new generation of CACI type cases. So, yes, the Home Office or the CPS, perhaps more accurately, perhaps not. There's a, a question about the Home Office influence on the, the CPS in that in that previous litigation. Um, but they are prosecuting those hand on the tiller cases again. Um, but I haven't heard of them prosecuting um, just the passengers in small boats. Um, so, yeah, it, it's a really it's a really ambiguous legal situation which is um is really unhelpful in some ways but i suppose that's how they want it that's how the government wants it they want that ambiguity um because they can sort of say that it's illegal when actually it's, it's not necessarily all that clear um also on small boats um i put out uh, um one of my charts or infographics i think i, I get criticized occasionally by um data viz Twitter for these things, um, with with good reason as well. But some of these sort of charts are uh, are done for a partly partly political reason. And um, this one was on the proportion of people arriving in the UK who are essentially arriving for protection. And I, I, I sort of edged around the word refugee there because I've included not just Ukrainians um, who make up about forty eight percent. Uh, of arrivals into the UK over the last year. But I've also included the Hong Kong scheme, which is that, you know, the people entering under the Hong Kong scheme wouldn't think of themselves as refugees. They wouldn't necessarily qualify for asylum under the Refugee Convention. But I think the, you know, existence of that scheme, it is a refugee-like scheme, essentially. It's because of political repression in Hong Kong. Um, and they they make up almost a quarter, basically. Well, it's just over a quarter, in fact, of, of refugee-like arrivals to the UK. So the people coming in small boats and by lorries, remember, not all refugees arriving irregularly are arriving in small boats. Some still are arriving in lorries or by other means. Um, it's about a quarter. Um, you know, resettlement is also on that chart. It's a tiny percentage. It's 0.6%. You know, resettlement, those safe and legal routes and so on, um, barely exist, really. But um, that, that was kind of – I was trying to make the point that um, – it's the numbers aren't as substantial when you see it in context and also making the point that you know again and this is this is a point that's been made by others repeatedly um if we look at the uk compared to other european countries or other countries more widely we're receiving a tiny tiny number of refugees so all of this kind of media and political fuss about small boats um is is arguably disproportionate um, and of course, you have to be careful when you're saying that because any, crossing in small boats is not a good idea. It's not nobody wants people crossing in small boats, um, and it's not that it's not serious. But it, uh, my point is that it should be seen in perspective, and um, it's it's not necessarily as big uh, as big an issue as some make out.
Um, mentioning Ukrainians there, there was um, a really good blog post by Jennifer Blair about um, the possibility of homelessness for Ukrainians. And I think this fits into one of those, you know, we talked about the the inspection reports earlier. It's almost certainly, unfortunately, going to be one of those examples of where the Home Office was warned, something was going to happen, they did nothing, and then it happened. And, you know, unfortunately, it seems certainly possible anyway, we're going to see a lot of the Ukrainians who've been um, given visas to come to the UK um, potentially being homeless over the next few months, um, which is terrible timing in terms of you know cost of living, winter, and uh, and so on as well. Um, so it's a, a really interesting blog post by Jennifer about the the issues with that and the stats that we've seen so far, which are are worrying. It's not it's not a major disaster yet, but um, you know, a lot of people could be in fairly serious trouble in the not too distant future if the government doesn't do something. Um, so whether they will or not remains to be seen. Okay, now before we go on to the statement of changes, um, Sonia, you were going to cover the the Rwanda litigation. Um, yeah, just a brief update because essentially the update or what's happening in the Rwanda legal challenges, we're waiting for decisions. Uh, three cases have been heard. Uh, the first one was the detention action, Care for Calais and PCSU. I can never remember what that stands for. The union um, and several claimants. So that was the first one that was the longest and UNHCR were intervening in that challenge. It was sort of focused on refugee convention and the situation in Rwanda that is waiting for anyone who would be sent there. Then um, the next one was the challenge that is on the transfer of data of people to Rwanda. And then the same week, the asylum aid challenge was heard and that was related um, to sort of access to justice and the fairness of the procedure here. All three of those were waiting for decisions. I think there was a, a directions hearing over summer that sort of indicated a decision would be given at the end of October. But I think at the end of the asylum aid case, the, the judges said it, it will take time to get the decision out. So obviously, we're still waiting for that. Uh, I would just add that notice of intents has still been issued now in relation to Rwanda. This is causing stress and terror to people, as it always has done. However, it's very unlikely that anyone is actually at risk of being sent to Rwanda, given the indication that no flights will take place until the litigation has concluded. Uh, That will take longer than the six-month inadmissibility period. And after that inadmissibility period has ended, the person will need to be admitted to the UK's asylum system. So basically, I just don't think we're six months away from the conclusion of all of this litigation yet. So anyone getting a notice of intent now is probably fine. It doesn't make them feel any better, I'm sure. But, you know, I think I think that's where we're at with that. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Anya. And then um, on to the statement of changes. So this is the new statement of changes to the immigration rules, HC 719, Afghanistan, Ukraine and victims of trafficking. So there are actually separate articles on Ukraine and victims of trafficking. So some of the changes covered in this article, uh, the poultry sector has been included in seasonal agricultural workers. It's put Appendix ARAP, which is the Afghan Relocation and Assistance Policy, into the rules. It has also um, extended Appendix Hong Kong BNO to enable children of BNO status holders to apply for the BNO route independently, i.e. without a requirement that they form part of their parents' household and are applying at the same time. The list of nationals needing a visa to visit the UK no longer includes Colombia, Guyana or Peru. 
And the requirement for registration with the police, which I think we discussed a month or so ago, has now formally been removed from the immigration rules. Uh, I mentioned that there was a separate article for Statement of Changes Ukraine Extension Scheme. And if you do want the full details of how the scheme works, then go to that article. But just to cover the changes, the time frame for applications has been extended. Uh, applications can be made by people with limited leave up to the 16th of May 2023 now. And that is formalizing a temporary policy concession that was in the caseworker guidance before. And it's also created a deadline of 16th of November 2023, which is the end date for the scheme. Right. Thanks, Sonia. And you've you've left me with the um, EU, Appendix EU changes. <laughs> Thank you very much for that. So um, this is a difficult one for me to cover because I'm not doing any of these applications. So trying to follow the kind of changes that are happening to this absolute nightmare bit of immigration rules. You know, it's, it's supposedly drafted in a really simple way. It's absolutely impenetrable. Um, so I'm just going to cover off the um, the sort of topics, shall we say. So Zambrano is covered and um, derivative rights of residents and the Home Office is still being extremely resistant, basically, to allowing people with Zambrano or derivative rights to, to, to claim settlement. Um, so it, this isn't just um, the Zambrano ones and the Akinsania um, lit- litigation. Um, pronunciation, terrible there. It's also, and this this is, I, I have no idea how to pronounce this one or, how, or spell it for that matter. It's the Tixira and um, Ibrahim derivative rights case as well. So some changes and tweaks um, to the definitions there. Um, there's something on Surrender Singh and qualifying as British citizens. And this this blog post, I should say, if, if you want the details, head over to it. It's by Chris Benn, who who really does follow this stuff very closely and and sort of is very closely engaged with these applications. And um, yeah, he's been working on these Surrender Singh cases for, for, for a good many years as well. Um, and I think this is broadly positive changes to, to basically um, get rid of some problems that people had been having to do with um, the dates and the documents that that were available. Um, same for um, family permits. Um, that's That's been changed so that I think it uh, removes one of the problems that people were previously having. Um, as he, he Chris closes this by commenting on the high number of applications, um, late applications, which are still being made, and also the much higher refusal rate. And he says, you know, it suggests that um, they're, they're being refused um, because of, um, you know, because they're late essentially, and people haven't given sufficiently good reason. Um, it'd be interesting to follow that, and I, I, I haven't seen stats really to suggest what the reasons for refusal are. But certainly, the refusal rates we know do have have gone up very considerably. Um, but that shouldn't stop people from applying because it's just such a, a difference. You know, if you do get status as opposed to um, being unauthorized and being in the hostile environment. Um, so that's my slightly slightly garbled um, attempt to uh, update you on the uh, Appendix EU and Appendix EU family permit bits. Right, galloping on, um, we are going to talk about various different case law things. And I think we're going to try and run through these fairly quickly. Um, you, missed, you missed statement of changes HC seven one nine on appendix temporary permission to stay for victims of human trafficking or slavery. Oh, I have, and you were going to cover that, weren't you, Sonia? Yes, so let's I am let's. I, I'll, that's I'll, why I know. <laughs> we, we won't. We won't. Okay, we'll move on to the case law in a minute. So, so sorry, I, I've missed out one of your topics there. You, you please, please go on. Uh, that's all right. I just wanted to highlight um, some important points for this. So uh, it comes into force on the thirtieth of January. And essentially, they're starting to implement Part 5 of the National Indian Borders Act now. There are a couple of things I wanted to highlight. Um, So 
the grant of leave will be made automatically following a positive conclusive grounds decision or consideration. So essentially the positive conclusive grounds decision serves as an application. Uh, so the grant of leave to remain in the UK, it must arise from the exploitation and be granted for one of the three purposes. The first is that where the grant of leave would assist with recovery from any physical or psychological harm. An important change here is that that harm must have arisen from the exploitation. Um, that if you're if you're granted leave in that category, that's a maximum of two and a half years leave. Uh, the second category is where the grant would enable the person to seek compensation if they couldn't do that from outside the UK. Uh, that is a maximum one year grant of leave. And then the third category is where the grant would enable them to cooperate with an investigation or criminal proceedings relating to their trafficking or exploitation. And that's also two and a half years maximum grant of leave. Do you think that's going to make a difference on the ground? Is, is this one of those changes where they make it look like they're doing something good, but they don't actually do it? Or is, is this actually going to be implemented, do you think? Um, I mean, we'll wait and see. If they start granting more people who have received a positive conclusive grounds decision, but who are still waiting for a decision on their asylum claim, then that is going to be a positive change. And I think that's what they're supposed to be doing following the case of KTT. Um, so, I mean, we'll see, basically. The the delays remain the big problem here. Yeah, so sort of cautious welcome to these changes then. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you wouldn't go that far, right? Okay, okay. Right, so I said I was going to cover some case law things. Um, I think the first case is one that I'm going to quickly mention. It's This is actually an unreported decision. Um, and it's negative as well. So sort of two reasons why people might be slightly surprised that we, we've covered it. it. It's to do with um, proportionality assessments in marriages of convenience cases. Um, so, you know, if you do want to cite this, basically, um, you need to look very carefully at the practice direction. You're supposed to do a little certificate for the judge saying that you've looked through all of the available cases and, and you can certify that, um, you know, there's nothing else that covers this. Uh, I'm not sure we can, we can, um, you know, tell you, uh, that that's definitely the case, but, um, the easier way to do it is just to, to, to run the same sort of arguments essentially. Um, and, um, this is one where it was somebody who, that the, the facts as found were they'd entered into a marriage of convenience, but then the relationship had become genuine and they actually had a child together. Um, sort of looking at, looking at the facts of the case. So a bit of that kind of green card, Andy McDowell, Gerard Depardieu kind of, um, type situation. And, um, um, yeah, the, the upper tribunal um, overturns the, the first tier decision um, in the end, but does agree that um, proportionality is relevant, but dismisses it on the fact in this case. So um, just just really a quick mention, because that that, that is potentially useful um, point to be trying to run in those kinds of cases. Okay, on to a, a much more significant and important case, Sonia. Yeah, so this is a lack of route for victims of transnational marriage abandonment is unlawful, high court fines. The case is AM and Secretary of State for the Home Department. And yeah, as you mentioned, I mean, this is just, this is so good to see because it's an issue that, you know, people have worked really hard on for years. They've tried the policy route and, you know, the Home Office hasn't done anything to fix the situation. Just for anyone who doesn't know, transnational marriage abandonment is where a person deliberately abandons their partner abroad and takes steps to prevent their return to the UK. It often follows a history of domestic abuse. And um, as Nath describes it in the article, it's the ultimate form of controlling behaviour. 
It's also sorry, sorry, sorry. It's also right. um, so I did I did my pupilage with um, Tirtha Gupta, who who used to do a lot of these cases. So this is in two thousand and six, two thousand and seven, and um, he, he used to be briefed by Amory Hutchinson, who who's a she's now deceased, but a very very famous solicitor for for doing this stuff. And Tirtha described these as basically a convenient form of child abduction. So instead of having to do a runner and, and go to a foreign country with the child in order to, to, to have them to yourself, which some people do, um, instead you can take your spouse to a foreign country, dump them there, and then come back to the UK and continue living in your own country um, with, with, with you know, having basically cut them out of your life and the child's life and leaving them stranded without their passport and with no way of getting back in because now that the, you know, you've declared to the home office that the, the relationship is broken. So it's kind of, it, it's, it's, yeah, absolutely. A form of sort of controlling behaviour and you know, may well be linked to domestic abuse, but it's also it can be worse than that. It can be basically sort of child abduction, essentially. Yeah, and in this case, Am was separated from her child, I think, for eight months before she was able to get back into the UK. Uh, so the issue here is that if this had all happened in the UK, the the domestic abuse then she would have been eligible for indefinite leave to remain as a victim of domestic abuse. However, it was not possible to do that from abroad because you have to be inside the UK. So she applied for leave outside the rules and asked to be granted ILR or ILE. Um, and she was granted six months outside the rules with no recourse to public funds. Um, by the time the case came to the admin court, she was back in the UK and the Home Office had granted her indefinite leave. And so, I mean, read the judgment anyway, because I think it's really interesting. But the Home Office did what it often does with these policy challenges, and it it said it's now academic and, you know, it should be dismissed on that basis. So the judge disagreed. Uh, She referred to the evidence that had been presented to her by lawyers and charities who had been working on this issue regarding the phenomenon of transnational marriage abandonment. Uh, I also thought it was interesting that the Home Office provided no evidence. They didn't even put in a witness statement. Um, So, yes, essentially the judge said the only evidence upon which she could proceed is that from the claimant. And so she held that it was a breach of human rights. So the Home Office do need to remedy this. However, as Nath has pointed out, this is likely to take a long time, a very long time, let's be honest. So in the meantime, practitioners who have these cases, they should rely directly on the judgment while we're waiting for the Home Office to sort this out. Yeah, it's it's really, really good to see this case. It's such a such a big success. Um, so, yeah, we used to call these stranded spouse um, cases, yeah. but it kind of, it, we, we were sort of searching for a term to describe how bad a sort of set of behaviours it is. And stranded spouse doesn't sound that bad. Um, I'm not sure transnational marriage abandonment much better, but it's better no. than stranded <laughs> spouse. Um, but yeah, Tirtha was my pupil master, and he's basically, it's his fault that I ended up coming to the bar. So I'd, I'd left... I'd left IAS and it fully intended to go back to my job. I'd t- taken a sabbatical um, and then um, had, a, had a pretty miserable beginning to my, my pupillage and then um, had a lovely few months following Tirtha around doing these incredible sort of child abduction cases and, and stranded spouse cases and, um, yeah, really interesting time in the in the family division of the High Court um, and then, yeah, decided not to go back to IAS and stay at the bar. Yeah, it's all his fault. 
So I just quickly want to mention a case on the Home Office review of a policy on the timing of applications. So this is, in some ways, it's it's not a big case because probably doesn't affect that many people, but it's actually very important for those that it, it does affect. This is um, a, a post that Duncan Lewis um, solicitors sent in, and it's to do with the timing of fee waivers and Section 3C type leave, where the, you know, this basically this person had been um, had a pending application for a long time because of his fee waiver. It wasn't showing up on home office systems, though, as an in-time application because of the way that that worked. And then when his employer did a um, right-to-work check, he showed up as being uh, uh, over- an overstayer, even though he wasn't, and basically, I think, lost his job as a, as a consequence or certainly had problems as a consequence. So the, the idea is that the Home Office is basically going to, to change the way that that operates so that people who are relying on fee waivers are better protected in a much better situation. So it's, it, it's, a, it's a useful case from that point of view. Okay, I think I managed to, to just about do that one justice. Sonia, over to you to cover the next one. Um, Okay, so the next one is applicants from Afghanistan may not need to enrol biometrics at the time of an application. The cases are KA and others and Secretary of State for the Home Department. And really, I mean, the the title of the article sums it up. The Home Office has accepted that an application for entry clearance without biometrics will not be rejected automatically and would be considered on its merits. And that includes consideration of whether or not to waive or defer the biometrics requirement. Great, thank you. And you know, again, amazing that the Home Office has been so resistant to these applications. Just, just unbelievable. Well, it's not unbelievable at all, is it? If you've been doing this for a while, and um, and I think you were going to also cover the last case for this month. Yes. Yeah, so this one is Court of Appeal Quash Trafficking Victims two thousand and nine conviction. The case is BYA and R. It was in the Court of Appeal. This this case is really interesting because. Um, a lot of people who have been through trafficking or modern slavery, they have criminal convictions that are related to that experience um, of being trafficked. And it is possible to get those convictions overturned quite far out of time. Um, anyway, what I found interesting about this case was it was about that nexus of um, the the experience of being trafficked um, and the criminal conviction because it, it looked like it was sort of further away than usual, shall we say, because she had been trafficked. I think she had escaped from the trafficking situation and then she was trying to go to the Netherlands using a document that she had been given while she was being trafficked and that conviction was still overturned. Um, even though the nexus was a little further away from what I would have expected was possible to to have a successful um, appeal. So, I mean, it, it was just a really good result. And anyone who does have, if you have a client who has been through trafficking and has a criminal conviction, then I just strongly recommend that you read this case and ideally then send them to Philippa Southwell of Bird Solicitors, who is just phenomenal at doing these cases. Yeah, I can second that. She's she's got a real reputation in the in the, in the sector for doing fantastic work. Um, surely there's some mistake though. Surely this is one of these um, pesky modern slavery trafficking victims who are responsible for all of the inability to remove people and small boat crossings and all that, Sonia. Don't honestly, I just find it so distressing because I've worked with so many of these people and what they've been through, and you know how 
they they get through it all and how strong they are. And then to see the way that they are described by politicians, by Home Office officials, by the media, it's just extremely distressing and it, it shouldn't be happening. And, yeah, it, it's just, it yeah, <laughs> it's been a rough month. It, it's been it has been a really rough month and and let's hope it gets better but there's not much sign i, mean, I think cj and i when we we're doing these used to try and end on a, a high note for a while but we quite quickly found that that was quite challenging frankly and uh, i think we've certainly haven't succeeded this month that's a fairly depressing note to end on but well, that I, does bring us to the end i can think of a of something we haven't mentioned is grant shapps the best home secretary we've had in over a decade <laughs> what because he he didn't have a chance yeah you know we we didn't even mention him but yeah he was he was much better than any of the others we've had for pretty much the entire time I've been doing this job yeah he started to clear the you know the the Manston refugee camp and and get the hotel bookings going again and so on didn't um, do any damage That's no the bar. no oh god that, that's a really oh, depressing I made it depressing again <laughs> Okay, well, that wraps things up for this month. So thanks very much for listening. We hope that's been useful. Goodbye. Bye.